Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to Reformed Meditations. I'm Lee, and it's a pleasure to be with you again this week. And uh, we're going to get into our study of Hebrews again. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 5 through 8 today. So I hope this finds you well. I hope you're in a place where you can open your Bible and take a look. And if you're not, don't worry. I'm going to read it to you. And I'm going to attempt to read it well without stumbling and then get on with some meditation on what we're looking at. All right, Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 8. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So as usual, there's a lot going on here. And one of the first things I wanted to mention was that in verse 5, he uses a particular phrase, the world to come. And, and we might already have an idea in our minds what he means by that, you know, we talk, whether we're talking about heaven or, um, or the new heavens and the new earth, right? Something that we're, a concept we're familiar with. But what's interesting is that there's a particular Jewish uh, idea behind this phrase. And I think the preacher of Hebrews is using this particularly because, as we can tell from the title of the book, he's speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience at the time, ethnically Jewish Christians, people who had a background in Judaism and then were saved by the grace of Christ and became Christians. This phrase, world to come, even is still pervasive within Orthodox Judaism today. Uh, but what, what exactly do they mean by it? Well, they talk about the world to come sort of like an afterlife, but specifically it's a, a place and a time wherein uh, all of God's promises have come to fruition, which I think is, well, number one, that's a nice idea. Uh, I like that idea a lot. Um, but it's also, I find it kind of rich because <laughs> while, while they're looking forward to that day coming, we who are Christians, we who, who know Christ, the true Messiah, uh, who has already come, we don't have to wait for him to come the first time. Uh, he's already the fulfillment of every promise of God for us. Just like second Corinthians one says that all the promises of God find their yes in, in Christ. So, you know, okay, that's a nice, that's a nice idea, um, and I could see the preacher of Hebrews using that as an effective bridge, like, uh, you want to talk about the world to come, you know, you're eagerly anticipating the day that all of God's promises will come to full fruition for the benefit of his people, well, let me tell you about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, in whom all of God's promises are yes and amen. And I think that that plays a bit into his citation here of Psalm 8 uh, in, the, in the next verse. Um, so, okay, so he, he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we're speaking. So, and we need to remember here from the, the earlier discussion from chapter 1 and up until this point in Hebrews, drawing the 
contrast between Jesus and angels, further proving that Jesus is something much higher than an angel, which is a heavenly created being. He is divine. He is of the same essence with the Father, uh, the second person of the Trinity, equal in Godhead with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So on a completely other plane. And so this would, would go right along with that. He didn't subject the angels the world to come. No, that, that is only for the Messiah. That's only for the Son of God. No angel would ever be the subject of, of what we're already been talking about. Okay, so on to Psalm 8. And, and I, I love this here. I know some people have made some some good jokes out of the run-up to, to the citation in verse 6. But it says, one has testified somewhere... I, I, you know, some people have called this the uh, the Hebraic method of memorizing scripture, where the citation isn't the most necessary part. It's knowing the words and understanding the words. I totally get that, and I, I actually really like that because I'm one of these people, and I'm, maybe you're the same way. But confession time, I'm one of those people who has a really difficult time remembering the the precise citation of particular passages of scripture. I'll, I'll generally I'll know the book and roughly the chapter, but good luck on on like verse citations. Uh, I just really struggle with that. I always have. I'm not sure why, and it's not for lack of trying. Though I guess I could try harder. But so the fact that the preacher of Hebrews does this with such an iconic psalm too, which I think is really hilarious. Like this isn't some minute detail from you know, Leviticus or Numbers or something like that. Like, this is a pretty major and memorable psalm, uh, but he still says that someone has testified, one has testified somewhere saying the words. Um, I, I don't know. I, li- I, I like that kind of level of detail. Uh, it kind of makes me feel a little bit better when I stumble on um, on citations, and sometimes I have to pause this recording to make sure that I'm saying the right chapter sometimes, so uh, there's a little transparency for you. Um, but anyway, so he's so he cites Psalm 8 here. Um, in fact, there it's, it's particularly, and I looked this up ahead of time, Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. And the way we understand that psalm when we just read it is God's grace toward humanity, which is small, and and pathetic, uh, you know. We see not only in the opening verses how glorious God is. We get pictures of creation being being big and being wonderful, and then and then we move right into you know man and and the the out of the mouths of infants and little babies, he has established strength, and and we see obviously the great verse four. What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? which is what's cited here. So we're seeing this from the perspective of mankind. And I would say that would be the the initial meaning, uh, the on-its-face meaning of, of that psalm. But the preacher of Hebrews here is going in another direction. He, this is a... He's using it in a Christological sense, right? Because we've been talking about the uniqueness the power and and now the sovereignty of the Son of Man, 
or Son of God, Jesus Christ, all these names that we, we want to ascribe to him. Um, but he's using that, that phrase Son of Man here in the sense that uh, I talked about in the earlier Theophany episode from Daniel. If you haven't heard that, you can go back not too far away in the archives and take a listen. This name, this designation, Son of Man, is the is a biblical title that is shorthand for the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. You know, and it's funny, I said this in that episode, but you know, in our minds we tend to think if we're talking about the divinity of Jesus, we we would say Son of God. Uh, it just makes sense to us. But at that time, actually Son of Man was the distinction for divinity. And Son of God, it was actually the designation for humanity, especially when it came to uh, kingly line. People would speak of uh, David's line as sons of God. So here, the preacher of Hebrews isn't just talking about sons of human men. What is a man's son, so to speak? But he's talking about the Son of Man, capital S, capital M, uh, to speak of Christ. So looking through this passage, I have three outstanding pieces of Christological importance that we get out of this text, as the preacher of Hebrews is using it here. First, we're talking about, uh, in verse 7, you've made him for a little while lower than the angels. Well, mankind in and of ourselves as as people on earth, there's no doubt we're lower than angels, right? That's why when angels appear to people, they have to tell them, don't be afraid, because they have a level of glory higher than ours. And as is fitting, when we see someone who's more glorious than us, we tend to be afraid, or at least we should be afraid. So this for a little while kind of has another meaning if we're thinking about Jesus, because he not only did he take on flesh and was placed lower than the angels in taking on humanity but ontologically the second person of the trinity is much higher than angels so this disparity is much higher for him as he condescended to be made man so for roughly 33 years that's our estimate for the earthly life of Jesus in his earthly ministry, for roughly 30-ish, 33 years, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was made lower than the angels. And of course, being an eternal person, uncreated, uh, eternally begotten of the Father, he has had no beginning. We can easily say that 30 years on earth as a man, is a very short time to be made lower than the angels because he had all of eternity up to that point in history when he came in his incarnation and was born of the Virgin Mary. And then he's had all the subsequent time after his ascension to return to his glorious state. So that time is very, very short if we think about it in terms of eternity. This fits quite well, actually, with that incarnational situation of Christ. He was for a little while made lower than the angels. And to go right along with that, the second point is that he's been crowned with glory and honor. 
In fact, that's right there in verse 7. So you've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And so in the original psalm, when we're talking about that, we see we're talking about the not only the responsibility of mankind to carry out the the dominion mandate that was given in the garden, you know, go forth and multiply and take dominion over the earth. Okay, so that that fits on that level, just talking man to man about the the purpose of mankind. And we can also say that mankind is the crowning creation to inhabit the earth, right? We're lower than angels, but there's no disputing that we are the highest created being set to inhabit the earth. Um, No other creature, no other created being has a soul the way that mankind does. There is no other created being with whom God has ever made a covenant, let alone a covenant as gracious and wonderful as the new covenant that we live under uh, by the grace of God and under the blood of Christ. There's no created being that God himself, the second person of the Trinity, would come in the form of, you know, there's a reason that Jesus takes the form of a man rather than an ape or a snail or um, a killer whale or, or any other creature because mankind is truly set apart. There's no other created being made in the image of God. Okay, so that, I mean, that's a kind of crowning of, of glory and honor. But to take this Christologically the way that the preacher of Hebrews is doing here, we are led to see this crowning of glory and honor as something much higher than the sort of glory and honor that we have as the highest of the created things on earth. Jesus, being very God of very God, has been crowned with glory and honor again since the beginning of time, since before the beginning of time. He has eternally held the glory that belongs to God alone. I have Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8 here, uh, talking of, of Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So even though he he laid aside some of those rights that he has uh, as the eternal Son of God, co-equal with, with the other two persons of the Trinity, he still laid some of those things aside to be born as a man. But that doesn't diminish the fact that he has the crown, he has the glory, being king of kings, being king of glory, uh, and lord of all, rightfully. That's, that's his place, that's his right. And unlike what the materialists might say, or the Gnostics might say, Taking on flesh did not diminish any of that in the least. Uh, he proved to be the mediator between God and men in his earthly ministry and then in his ascension and then his session at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he is our advocate at this very moment and will continue to be. So this is a, another level of, of crowned glory 
that Jesus has. Third, uh, that he has been appointed over the works of God's hands and put all things in subjection under his feet. So he's been appointed over all things. And again, this is scaling up from how we would have understood this uh, from the psalm. I just spoke a couple minutes ago about the dominion mandate where God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and take dominion over the earth. That's the charge given to mankind over the earth itself. So again, as Jesus being the last Adam, his charge is also over everything. But it's not merely about mowing the grass. It's not about planting fields or having children and and those children growing up and having children and filling the earth with people and subduing it. We're talking about everything, the entire creation. We know from Scripture that everything that has been made was made through Christ. And thus, he has the right to be king over all of it. Another great cross-reference for this is the entirety of Psalm 110, which is the most cited psalm throughout the New Testament. In fact, not only the most cited psalm, I believe it's the most cited Old Testament passage of all of them, and I believe that's by far. Uh, I think the second most cited passage is much, much less than citations of Psalm 110. And so there's a reason, because it exalts the sovereignty and the divine kingly right of Jesus over all of his creation, and especially of the church for whom he spilled his blood. Now, this is a profound mystery, because if we think about our times, especially because those are the times we know best, we're living through them, sometimes it doesn't feel like God is in control of all of this, because we see so many things spinning out wildly, things going terribly wrong, wicked rulers, uh, natural disasters, all sorts of things. And I think if we think too much about what's going on in our world, what's going on in our times, even just within our own communities, we can make ourselves believe, even just for a brief second, that maybe we are floating out here all on our own and God is just sitting back and watching it and not intervening. And I think that's where, once the citation of Psalm 8 ends and we get this final comment in this section from the preacher of Hebrews, this kind of brings it into perspective for us. So we've seen at the the beginning of verse 8, you've put all things in subjection under his feet. Okay, we may not feel like that's happened, right? Sometimes we feel like the wicked people are running amok and doing whatever they want. And, I, and there's quite a few psalms that would say the same thing to us. I mean, that's a that's a normal thing to feel. But I find this last half of the verse to be really helpful. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Okay, so but before I finish it, That's a huge statement right there. In speaking about subjecting all things to him, he's covered it all. There's nothing that is not subject to him. So we we have to get that through our minds. So we live in a sinful world, 
And yet, that sinful world is subject to Jesus. From beginning to end, soup to nuts, to the very last detail, all of it is subject to him. That's how we can agree with Genesis 50, where Joseph says, you meant it for for ill, you meant it for harm, but God meant it for good. Even the sin of the sinful world is still subject to Jesus. And God is using that for good. Now, it may not seem like that now because we're so close to the situation, but to God, who is very much outside of time, and thank goodness that he is, he is playing it all out for good, for his glory and for the benefit of his people. Okay, so so he's left nothing. He left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Okay, so doesn't that just undo everything I just said? No. Uh, The short answer is no, because of the already and not yet principle that we talk about sometime. We talk about the kingdom of God as an already not yet reality. So in eternity, the kingdom of God exists and is pervasive it is perfect, but right now, on our level, in human history, as it's marching forward, we do not see the fullness of it. So that's, that's what I mean by already and not yet. The kingdom of God is already fully established in, in eternity, but by God's plan, it is being worked out in human history and will arrive at that point, even though... From God's perspective, it's already accomplished. That means that it's certain and that it will come to fruition. But to finite people like us who only live so long and then we die, it doesn't look like it's finished, that it's still rolling out, that the kingdom is still expanding across the world through missions, through the solid testimony of the church, whether here in the U.S. or abroad, the kingdom is advancing, and it's not finished yet. It hasn't yet reached the complete fruition that God has planned and that God has already executed, and it is just rolling out into its fruition. So in the same way, we can say, yes, all things are subject to Christ right now. He is sovereign. He's the King of kings. He's the ruler of all creation All things are subject to him, but at this time that we're living, the time that this sermon was preached and was written down in our times currently, we are waiting to see all things subjected to him. And we know by faith they will be. We're told that they already are, right? Already, not yet. And so the faithful spread of the gospel across the world accomplishes this. Right? Jesus promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And so we can have faith that he will guide and empower the church as we spread the gospel throughout the world and throughout the ages of human history until the return of Christ. We can have faith that these things will all be subjected to Christ in history because he's promised that. And so that should give us uh, encouragement and should give us fuel to 
be faithful and passionate witnesses of the gospel, to proclaim that humanity is sinful and dead in sins and trespasses, but the grace of Christ is here to replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh and to draw people into his covenant, to show his steadfast love to people who had been his enemies, and then to send them out uh, to not only worship him and enjoy him forever, but to freely invite others to come under his covenant, to repent and believe and to enjoy him forever. And we will see the faithfulness of Christ flow across the nations of the earth. And the preacher of Hebrews brings it all together in verse 9, where he says, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Uh, I can say as a believer that he tasted death for me, the death of the sinner being justly punished by a holy God for being a traitor, to be a cosmic traitor, to quote R.C. Sproul. He took that penalty for me. He took that penalty for every Christian who has ever lived. And I hope uh, for those of you listening that you have repented of your sins and believed in Christ and that you could confidently say that he has tasted death for you as well. Uh, That is the gospel right, that we who deserved to die the death of a sinner, instead we can die the death that Christ died, namely that his righteousness given to us and that when we die, we are raised to new life. I think it was Doug Wilson or somebody who who said it this way, and I really like the way that this was said. I'm pretty sure it was him, but he said, Jesus lived that we may live and died that we may die. Okay, what? so what? what? <laughs> so he lived righteously so that I may live righteously, right? That's the core of double imputation, that my sins are imputed to Christ on the cross, and because he died for me, his righteousness that he lived is credited to me so that he lived a righteous life that I never could because I'm stained by sin. So he lived the righteous life so that I could live righteously by his grace. And he died and rose again so that I may die and be raised to new life. And that's the promise for every believer. So I hope that is a promise that you can confidently say that you have. And if not, then I sincerely pray and and beg you to repent and believe and uh, fall at the throne of grace because there will be grace there for you. All right, well, thank you all for listening. Uh, Check the show notes for uh, social media links for me. You can find me on Twitter at refmeditations, and you can also email me directly at reformedmeditations at gmail.com. There are quite a few links in the notes these days. First is for the Bar Network. Happily uh, can say that Reformed Meditations is a Bar Network podcast, and I highly recommend that you check out the network and subscribe to the shows. There's so many great gospel-centered shows on there and do a really great job proclaiming the truth across the internet every week. Uh, And then also check out 
the myriad of links to different Facebook meme pages. Uh, I've become friends with the exiled house of meme lords, and uh, I love what those guys are doing over there. Guys, not not exclusively men, uh, but a, a group of meme lords nonetheless, uh, doing some great work. And uh, so go go look up some funny memes. Go subscribe to some great podcasts. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.